Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. This week, find out if those chocolate and salted pistachio babka buns were a home run, or if having both of us in the kitchen just caused double trouble. We'll also introduce a magical chocolate ingredient from a Portland candy maker. Watch out, Willy Wonka! And to wrap up our month, I'll send us out on a special note from Norway. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, you might recall back in the beginning of the year, one of our listeners, it was Renee, had posted a link to a book called Cooking with Scraps by Lindsay Jean Hard. And it was a book where you get to use some of your things that you'd normally throw away, your food waste, and instead you use it in cooking. Okay. My normal Sunday routine is to make some hummus to last me through the week. And I always use two cans of garbanzo beans. So this week I decided to turn over a new leaf and to save that garbanzo bean juice, otherwise known as aquafaba, that we've talked about on this show. Oh, yeah. When we've talked about aquafaba, we always talked about using it as a whipped cream substitute. And so Mm -hmm. I hadn't really been saving it or using it because it never seemed to line up with anything that I was baking. But Mm -hmm. I had seen in that Cooking with Scraps book a recipe for fudgy aquafaba brownies. And so I was able to use my aquafaba. It's basically the egg replacer in the recipe. Yeah. And they turned out really, really good. How many eggs were you replacing, do you think? Did you use both cans full of the aquafaba? Um, No. The recipe called for half a cup of the aquafaba, and I poured both cans into a measuring cup, and that was a full cup. So it is one can. Yeah, one can. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then did you whip them, or did you just add them as is? You whip them, and she said 10 to 20 minutes. Whoa. I have that high-speed KitchenAid stand mixer, so I would say in mine it took more like six to eight minutes to get it to the soft peak stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And how did they taste? Could you taste any beanie? I love them. They turned out really well, and the person who loves them the most in my house right now is my daughter. She has been eating them a lot. So I did break my rule of not having brownies in the house, but I felt (laughs) that since I was taking care of some food waste that I would normally throw away, it was all in pursuit of a good cause. You know, that aquafaba continues to absolutely amaze me. I don't know why it doesn't taste like the beans. Yeah, in this case, you didn't add anything to it. You just Mm -hmm. added your normal brownie mixture into the whipped aquafaba. Yeah. You know, it's good to just keep in the fridge. I notice it doesn't keep for very long, though. But sometimes if I can't use it right away, I do just stick it in a glass container in the fridge. And I think it's like two or three tablespoons are equivalent to one egg. So sometimes if I just am doing something really simple like a muffin, something that doesn't have too many eggs to begin with, I'll reach for the aquafaba. And I, I'm hard pressed to tell you when I do that. You know, I have to remind myself, oh, this is when I use the aquafaba, mm-hmm. not a chicken egg. Yeah, yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, my daughter had no idea that there were no eggs in this brownie recipe. Yeah. Although I am curious. So I did put the other half a cup in the fridge in a glass jar and I labeled it. How do you know? You said it doesn't last too long. How do you know it? it's done? 
Yeah, it gets a very much stronger beanie flavor in my experience. Okay. And then if it even goes a little bit further, it gets kind of a surface scum, (laughs) for Mm. lack of a better word. It looks like it starts kind of growing some algae a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just kind of thickens. It's it's, uh, always been kind of obvious to me, so. Okay. I'll keep a close eye on it. Thanks for that heads up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, those sound great. And another great item for Crazy for Chocolate Month. That's right. Yeah. Well, speaking of crazy for Chocolate Month, Andrea, we are closing out our final week, and I have to ask you, have you ever eaten or heard of ceremonial-grade cacao? No, that is new to me. What is it? Doesn't it sound fantastic? It sounds. I just love the ritual inherent in ceremonial-grade cacao. And I know you love it because you love alliteration, so you were probably probably already pretty excited. I was. CC, ceremonial cacao. Well, I heard about this from a friend, and it is much more of a ritual and kind of a health food almost, this way of eating chocolate. So I found an article from Romani Pope uh, on medium.com, and she says that ceremonial grade paste of the cacao is made by fermenting and lightly toasting or sun drying the beans, then peeling the husks and stone grinding them to create a paste that's set into a block. So that kind of sounds like maybe how you might make a block of chocolate, but there's Mm -hmm. no sugar added and there's nothing taken out. So the folks who really enjoy ceremonial cacao really think that it retains a lot of the nutrients and the vitamins that are inherent in pure chocolate or pure cacao. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of maybe if you think about, you know, down in the Aztec culture or other ancient cultures in South America when they were having this kind of drinking chocolate as a very ritualistic type of beverage and had been used in you know ceremonies and celebrations for thousands of years. So It's really about taking the time and the ritual and drinking this very delightful beverage. My friend buys the blocks or wafers and just dissolves them in a boiling water. And so she says it's not very sweet, but it's just very thick and very rich. And mostly what she likes is just taking the time to kind of slow down and savor the chocolate. So I thought I would mention Yeah, this is matching up really well to some facts that I learned on my Mayfair chocolate ecstasy tour that I did (laughs) while I was in London. And I didn't realize that chocolate had originated in Mexico. And so it is kind of matching up with what you're talking about. And she did tell us that it was a bitter drink for a long time. Um, The the sugar and that sort of thing wasn't added until years later. So that's really interesting. Yeah, the history of chocolate is something that I think I'm going to definitely want to bone up on because it's fascinating. And Andrea, next time you're here, we can check out a club that perhaps I might have started and clearly shares my love of alliteration. That's the Cacao Club here in London. Oh, you're going to start a club? No, it's it's already been started, oh. sadly. <laughs> or fortunately. No, I just really appreciate the name, Cacao Club. Oh, yeah. Okay, we got to check that out. All okay, right. definitely. It's on the list. And speaking of things in London, you and all the other mothers have a special day coming up on March 31st. It is Mothering Sunday in the United Kingdom. What sort of special treats are you thinking of maybe bringing to light to highlight this special day? 
Well, yes, it's the first of my Mothering Sunday slash Mother's Day celebrations. Of course, I, <laughs> I celebrate them both. Yeah, well, we wanted to call out a few. I'm, I'm not sure yet what my family has up their sleeves for me, although I think it might be some strawberry shortcake, which I always love. And mm. it's a little early in the season here, but but not too extravagantly so. So that might be coming my way. But you know, Andrea, as we were looking back through some fun spring desserts, we thought of a few that might be great if you want to bake something up for your mother, listeners. And one that would be an absolute showstopper is the lemon elderflower cake from episode 76. Of course, that was Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's wedding cake that we recreated and was so fabulous. Oh, yeah. That would be good as cupcakes as well, I think. So that would be a lovely, lovely Mothering Sunday dessert. It's very early spring, very beautiful. Another speaking of cupcakes, we both loved the cupcakes we made back in episode 51. I did a Boston cream pie cupcake and you did a marshmallows s'mores cupcake. Oh, yeah. That was great. I remember that. And then what about the classic cream puffs from episode 59? I remember that was my January blue ribbon that year. They were really, really good, very light, really elegant, and could be a nice, I I think kind of all of these might be nice, especially if you're hosting a larger crowd on Mother's Day, which is sometimes the case. Yeah, and those lasted for a while in the fridge, I remember, and that's another nice thing that you can prepare those ahead of time. Yeah, absolutely. I'd also like to offer that the best dessert is often the one that mom likes best. So make sure (laughs) you're asking uh, what mom might like instead of, you know, making your own favorite. And finally, I'd like to offer that some mothers might most appreciate a day off. And so... (laughs) Um, You might want to suggest that for Mother's Day that you're willing to, um, I don't know, leave the house. My husband and child did that for me one year. (laughs) Oh, so you just got to hang out at your house by yourself. I had a whole day in the house by myself, which I don't know why, but it was just so fabulous to have a weekend day in the house by myself. It's It's a rare thing. And I was able to just stay in my pajamas and take my time and I didn't have to do anything for anyone. And you already yeah. know I hate breakfast in bed. So I mean it was just <laughs> it was just perfect. They they left and they entirely took care of themselves and all I had to think about was me. And that that particular year was exactly what I needed. Yeah, that's kind of the ultimate luxury when you just have what you need and, and can relax and enjoy. Yeah. That sounds so nice. Yeah. Well, mom's out there in England and then of course coming up later on, we salute you, of course. Yes. Well, Andrea, this week we have a very special review, and that is because we were together for this week's Bake Along, which was the chocolate and salted pistachio babka buns from Ed Kimber, otherwise known as The Boy Who Bakes. This was a riot. We had so much fun baking together, and these were fantastic. They turned out so great. It couldn't have come with a better recipe. Yeah, I had a lot of fun baking with you. I definitely was able to observe our different styles in the kitchen, and (laughs) that was really fun. Um, I made the comment when we were starting that I was going to watch you like a hawk because I'm, you know, just fascinated with how people who are really good rule followers and recipe readers, how they sort of approach a recipe. (laughs) And one thing I noticed that I did, and I never even told you this, so, you know, I hope you're sitting down. Is when I am weighing and measuring, Uh I don't ever care if I get the exact number. So I was in charge of the 
dough. What? And so, I know. So, for example, the bread flour, it was 500 grams, and the uh-huh. pasta sugar, it was 30 grams. I mean, okay. if I get 505, that's good enough for me. If I get 32 or 28, I'm fine with that. And I didn't even notice that I was doing it because that's just how I naturally do things until yeah. I watched you. You were doing the butter and you had to do 75 grams of unsalted butter. <laughs> and you you popped it in there and I think it was at like 78, which of course for me is like, cool, close enough. And then you started taking out these tiny, tiny uh-huh. little slivers uh-huh. until it uh-huh. was exactly uh-huh. 75. Right. And I thought, yeah. oh, look at that. She actually... If it says 75 grams, she actually does 75 grams. That is so funny. Well, I didn't realize. I hadn't seen you measuring those other ingredients, but butter is one. And I think even when I put it in there, I I eyeballed it, and it said 78 or whatever the number Uh was. It was really close to what it should have been. And I said, I'm getting so good at this. And then you did give me this odd look as I'm, like, scraping (laughs) off the minute curls of butter to put them back Yeah, well, and I guess a big part of my reasoning on this, although it's probably just an excuse, is I feel like, you know, you're going to melt the butter into in a pot, obviously, Mm -hmm. and some is going to be left behind when you pour it into the bowl. I mean, you're not mm-hmm. going to be able to scrape every single drop of that butter out of the pot and into the bowl. So if I start with 78, I feel like about three grams is going to be left behind coating the pot. And so I'm going to end up with 75 grams in the recipe. What do you well, think? Well, I guess what this well, I guess what this shows us is that half of this recipe was appropriately measured and half was not. <laughs> and we still <laughs> had great success. We had great success. That's the only thing that matters. I'm just glad now that you didn't see me doing mine because you probably would have thought, what what are you doing? We have a scale. Use it. That is so funny. I didn't catch that at all. Um, We had a great time in the kitchen. In fact, you guys, we had so much fun that we have an entire bonus episode of that segment of time of us baking the babka buns. So that is going to drop tomorrow. It is a special bonus episode. We hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it and putting it out there for you. It was one of our 19 for 19, Andrea, to do some live audio. And thanks to, I believe it was listener Christine who had suggested that one and we really loved it. So happy we could do it. That's right. It was really fun to talk to each other while we were baking and uh, to see how each other does things. And I just like how it went so much faster because there were two people. I think baking together with a friend is is really nice because you can just knock things out more quickly. I loved it too because at the end we could just sit down and share it together. And often when I'm baking, I'm alone in the house or my family is elsewhere. And so I don't get to sample it with a friend or with a companion right away. So that was just really heartwarming. I loved that. That is a good point. I did not get my family to taste these, obviously, since I was visiting you. But I got to see your family's reaction when they were eating them for the first time. So that was really fun. And I was so impressed that your daughter picked up on the flavors of the lemon and the salt because they were subtle. Yes. But she pointed that out. She said, oh, I can taste the lemon. And then she said, oh, I can taste the salt in these. So quite the palate there. Yeah, we we all really enjoyed those flavors, which were a little more sophisticated, I think. The lemon mm-hmm. with the dark chocolate with the pistachio and beautiful. I mean, I think that the word that keeps coming up in that bonus episode, we just keep saying these are so pretty. These are so beautiful. And they really, really were. So it's definitely a home run recipe for us. And we just wanted to talk 
kind of quickly because that bonus episode does have a huge review in it, but some technical things that we didn't mention. And one of them, the most important perhaps, was how long we baked these because we did deviate from the recipe a little bit. Oh, that's a good point. So the actual recipe says that you're going to heat the oven to 190 degrees Celsius or fan 170. And I believe you did use your fan setting. We did. Yeah. And then it says bake for 20 minutes or until golden brown. Right. And one thing is that the size on ours varied a bit. So we got 13 or a baker's dozen of really nice sized bigger buns. And Mm -hmm. we baked those for 18 minutes. So a little bit less than was called for. And then we got 12, which we considered to be maybe two-thirds of the size of the the bigger ones. And we baked those for 12 minutes. So just watch that. Ovens, of course, vary. And we didn't want them to get too brown. Uh, In the end, it was the perfect bake time. And um, yeah, what a win. It was so great. Yeah, and listeners, you can imagine the reason we ended up with different size buns is that I was in charge of the cutting, and I can't cut 20 consistent strips to save my life. So I felt I felt like I was doing my best. But... Give yourself some credit because – so this is, this is kind of another technical thing. The bread dough is rolled out to a very large rectangle, then half is spread with the – melted chocolate and sprinkled with pistachios and then you fold Mm -hmm. it over Mm -hmm. and those middle strips as you're cutting down the row those middle strips were really full and chunky much chunkier than the ones on the end I mean it's kind of the same like when you're making any kind of cinnamon roll or something there's always those ones on the end that are a little bit skinnier but um yeah I think the cutting was actually really exemplary you did a fine job there okay thank you oh yes I feel better (laughs) So anyway, we hope you take a listen to the bonus episode, which will drop tomorrow, which will be uh, March 26th. If you're listening to this in real time, it will also just be uh, noted in our show sheets and on players as a bonus episode for Bobka Buns. Great. Our final recipe for our Crazy for Chocolate month is something called Chocolate Magic Dust. Oh. I know. How do you I like that I love this. Name? I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> we won't be reviewing this one since this is our last Uh, episode for the month but I think we'll be using this throughout the year so it's one of those things that you make and you set aside and then you use as needed so don't worry listeners you'll hear us talking about it this chocolate magic dust comes from a cookbook called candy is magic it's written by Jamie Curl and she is the founder of a candy store in Portland called Quinn Mm -hmm. I've spoken about Quinn before I believe last time I was there I bought the Natural gumdrops and the natural starburst, and they were amazing. Oh, wow. Yum. I love starburst. This recipe is super easy. You are going to be taking granulated sugar and cocoa powder, kosher salt, a little bit of cinnamon, and some vanilla bean powder, mm. and whisking that all together until it looks like a big bowl of sparkly chocolate powder. <laughs> and then you just keep it in an airtight container or a resealable bag for up to a year. Now, this particular recipe, the article is published in Food 52, and the Food 52 article had some great ideas for how to apply this particular candy magic dust. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, they said you could put it in whipped cream. 
You could add it to butter, and of course, with that butter, you could just spread it on toast, or you could use it in a babka filling. Yes. You could make hot cocoa with it. You could add it to your waffles or your pancakes to turn them into chocolate waffles or pancakes. Of course, you could use it in cookies. You could make hot fudge with it. I mean, there were so many great ideas. I think basically you can just toss it into anything you want, and it's going to make it a little bit better. Yeah, this really does sound magical to me. And I also thought, Andrea, it's a good one to revisit maybe at the holiday time. But, you know, hey, it's Mothering Sunday coming up. Maybe you have a mom who's really into chocolate. This would make a lovely gift because those things that you can add it to are so fun and readily, you know, something that somebody is making up a lot or would enjoy having the flavor boost. And I love that as an idea for a gift. It's beyond... Beyond a gift that I've done before, and I love having a new item in my lineup. Yeah, I think it'd be really pretty in a glass mason jar. And since it has some cinnamon in it, you could tie, you know, a cinnamon stick onto it. The one thing I don't think I'm going to be able to do, Jamie recommends a particular type of cocoa powder called Felchlin. It comes from Switzerland, and it says, Jamie has searched the world, and it's the best there is. Mm. I don't think I'm going to be able to get my hands on it. I checked Amazon.com, which is where I would usually go if okay. you know there's something I couldn't find. It wasn't on there. I did find a website that says they're the exclusive distributor of Felchlin. But when I went to click on the cocoa powder, I had to log in and do all that sort of thing to get a price. And yeah. I was run- running out of time. So I might go back there and do that, or I might just go ahead and use my Valrona because I did spend a little bit extra for that Valrona cocoa powder. And so I think it might be a good one to use in this particular recipe. Yeah, I think also you have a lot of other flavors going on there. So just use whatever cocoa powder that you like best also. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe Globetrotting Gourmet will head up to Switzerland and do some cocoa powder sourcing (gasps) one of these days. Oh, I would love that. (laughs) I could send you with a little list. Okay. All right. We'll keep our eyes peeled for that one. And and listeners, if any of you have used that and can tell us why it's especially very superior, I mean, that would be really fun to know what makes it. What makes it so special for magical dust? I would love to know about that. Well, remember, we will have a link to these recipes we've talked about. That is the chocolate and salted pistachio babka buns from Ed Kimber, a.k.a. The Boy Who Bakes. And don't forget our bonus episode dropping tomorrow on March 26th to hear our live Bake Along in London. And then today's magical chocolate dust from Candy is Magic, a Portland candy company. Andrea, tell me again the name of the store. Quinn? Yeah, the name of the store is Quinn. And the cookbook is Candy is Magic. Yeah, excellent. So we'll have links to all of those in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 117, up on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as on our Facebook group, Preheated. Well, Stefan, speaking of the globetrotting gourmet, I know that you and your family recently returned from a trip to Norway. So perhaps you can give us another entry into our popular globetrotting gourmet segment. That's right. And I have to start off by admitting I'm not very familiar with Norwegian sweets. So I am looking forward to learning something new in your report. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with Nordic desserts either, aside from what I experienced last year in Finland. And if you remember from that Globetrotting Gourmet, which was episode 68, I ate quite a few berries during my time in the Arctic Circle. (laughs) I do remember that. And was that still the case when you were in Norway? Yes, but to a lesser extent. 
Fortunately, the one I did eat was very memorable. It was a lingonberry mousse called a troll creme that I ate in Oslo. Aside from loving that name, it was bright pink, but it wasn't what I was expecting flavor or texture-wise. Andrea, when you think of mousse, what comes to mind? Well, for me, it would be a rich and eggy custard with probably some sort of dairy, like a, a butter or a heavy cream in it. Yes, me too. But troll creme uses just the whites of eggs, which are uncooked, and it's completely dairy-free. I found a recipe online that sounds exactly like what I ate, and it's literally four ingredients. Egg whites, lingonberries or lingonberry jam, sugar, and vanilla. It's very light since it's essentially an uncooked meringue. In fact, it was kind of like eating a cloud. In this case, a pink cloud. Traditionally, I believe it's eaten at New Year's, but I think it would make a great dessert during the summer since it was so light and refreshing and doesn't need to be cooked. Was it very sweet? Not really. Those lingonberries are really tart. I admit I was the only one in my family who cared for it. They were too busy with a black currant crumble pie, which was also delicious. But troll creme just made me happy. You know, it reminds me of some pink macaroons that listener Maggie posted on our Facebook page recently. (laughs) And I immediately thought of you when I saw this. This troll creme sounds like your perfect dessert, if only for the aesthetics. Yes. Okay, so moving on from the pink cloud, what else did you find delightful there in Norway? So also in Oslo, we visited an outdoor cultural heritage museum, which reenacts life from historic Norway. So if you've ever been to Dearborn Village in Michigan or Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, you kind of get what I'm talking about. So here we tried one of my favorite Norwegian foods, lefse, which is a fluffy tortilla-like flatbread cooked in the 18th century style. I'd had these before in the States, but the versions I'd eaten used potato. The docent who was cooking this lefse explained that potatoes would have been hard to come by in the 18th century, and so her dough was made of flour, leavening, sugar, and salt. Even with those, by today's standards, humbler ingredients, this was still a dish for showing off since not everyone would have had sugar or salt. I'm loving the idea of this docent uh, cooking up this 18th Mm -hmm. century recipe. What a fun job. In 18th century clothing as well. Well, of course. (laughs) How did she cook it? Yeah, over an open fire. She had a flat round burner, for lack of a better word, that swung over the flames and she put the rolled dough on top for just a few minutes each side. It really did look like a large puffy tortilla. And if there's anything better than hot fresh bread, I still haven't found it. These were just the right combo of salty and sweet. And since we covered them in butter, which may not have been historically accurate, a real treat on a cold day. I love that all cultures seem to have a variation on this type of bread. Mm. You mentioned tortillas, but of course I'm also thinking of naan or pita, lavish, pizza, fry bread. Uh, I could go on since nearly every country in the world has their own entry into this category. I agree. And I love that about traveling and especially eating on those travels because it can really bring the similarities of food into sharp focus, even as you're eating something you may never have had before. Well, it's never easy to move on from fresh hot bread, but (laughs) go ahead and tell us what else you ate. So we spent a portion of our trip in a mountain town and ate all our meals at the lodge. Lucky for us, they served several yummy desserts, and every night I thought of you, Andrea. Guess why? Oh, let's see. Um, Were they made with lemon? Were they miniature? Uh, Were they topped with lattice? Were they bundt cakes? I don't know. (laughs) There's so many things I like. (laughs) 
It, close. They were served in mason jars. Oh. And one, in fact, was lemon. So every night there was a variation on what I would call a parfait or a soft cheesecake, a layered dessert with a custard dish base and toppings. The first was a cream cheese, berry, and almond combo. So that's called Ostercreme in Norwegian. The next was layered lemon and blueberries with a soft custard. And the last one was a brown cheese panna cotta. Ooh, okay, hold up. <laughs> I know what <laughs> panna cotta is, but brown cheese? Brown cheese, or brunost, is a true Norwegian specialty. As its name suggests, it's indeed brown. I liken the texture to a soft Havarti or a Gouda, but I thought the taste was a little sharper than either of those. It was yeastier and saltier. Some people think it has a caramel flavor, which is why it works well in a dessert application. It's traditionally eaten with jam on bread or waffles or crisp bread, and I even heard it can be melted down into a sauce. Everywhere you go in Norway, you'll see those cheese slicers that look a little bit like small spatulas. Oh, yeah. And they're used to, pardon me, cut the brown cheese that people <laughs> eat morning, noon, and night. I can tell you have a small child. <laughs> I remember in Finland, you had that bread cheese, or it was called squeaky cheese, in a dessert. Yes. And then um, I got so excited when I found it in my local grocery store soon after you told us about it. So I guess I'll have to go and go to that same store and look, at, look for that Norwegian brown cheese next. Okay, next you went on to Bergen on the west coast of the country. Tell me, what did you love there? In true preheater fashion, one of the places I most love hanging out while on vacation is the grocery store. Oh, me too. <laughs> I think it's such a fascinating place to learn about a culture and hopefully find some new favorite treats. So I took a tip from international dessert expert Kate Brubaker, whom I interviewed way back in episode 53. I remember her saying that one of her favorite things to do in a new country is to buy a bunch of local candy bars. So believe me, I had no arguments from my family about this little experiment. I'm sure they were happy to participate in your research. Oh, yeah. How many did you go for? We tried eight. <laughs> and saying that out loud just sounds a little revolting. But I swear it was all in the name of research. Before we even opened the wrappers, we had such fun with the names. Is there any way to tell what a candy bar called Hobby will taste like? How about Stratus or Smash? Oh, which one of those came out on top? So our favorite by far was called a peanut kube. The best way to describe this masterpiece is to say it's like an oblong, crunchy peanut butter cup. Oh. I loved this so much. I even texted a friend who was also in Norway at the same time, encouraging him to purchase one or several. But a close second was probably the aforementioned smash, which was like corn pops covered in chocolate. I just love the name, too. Like, I want a smash bar. I feel like a smash. Yes. <laughs> and I've got to know, what does the hobby taste like? Well, the hobby was a soft, chocolate-covered banana marshmallow candy bar. Mm. I loved the name, but this tasted like the piece of candy that always gets left behind in the box of Valentine's Day chocolates. <laughs> not our favorite. No. Something about banana and marshmallow together is, and chocolate is not grabbing me either. I know what you mean by that. <laughs> I also like this reminder in the way you handled this. That's a good thing to do, to swing by the grocery store and the candy aisle on my next trip, no matter where I am in the world. It's a really fun hit of culture and also a good source of reasonably priced souvenirs or gifts that you can bring back. And maybe your new favorite candy bar. Yeah. <laughs> but Andrea, I have to mention one last delicious sweet before we wrap up. 
Now, I know you're not a huge fan of the classic cinnamon roll, but I think you would really love the version we had in Bergen because their dough was spiced with, can you guess? Uh, cardamom? <laughs> you got it! These Norwegian cinnamon buns, called Bergen Skilskin Bowler, were everywhere. And though they looked like fluffy American-style cinnamon rolls, and indeed were filled with a cinnamon spice mixture, the buttery yeast dough contained a healthy amount of your favorite cardamom. I thought their flavor was so much more complex and spicy, and I think you'd really enjoy them. Oh, I know I would. That sounds so good. Thank you for reporting back on your latest culinary adventure. Bara Higala, my pleasure. And I'll put links to the recipes for the troll cram and the skillings bowler, as well as some more info on the brown cheese in the show sheets for this episode, which is episode 117. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. Every Monday, we drop a new show, and next week, we're snuggling into our reading nook and turning some pages. That's right, it's Literary Bakes Month. We're combining two of the preheater's favorite ingredients all month long, so have your bookmarks at the ready. Remember, you can find us and our featured recipes on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please do tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our podcast. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.